Soccer show and an episode format we like to call Take It or Leave It. The concept is simple. You, dear listeners, send us your hot takes and we decide if we're going to take them or leave them. Today we've got some spicy thoughts on the next MLS MVP, Kevin De Bruyne's GOAT status and the modern emphasis on analytics and data. Ooh, my name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is the power trio, Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Am I the power trio all on my own, or or do we collectively make up the power trio? I need to know on a scale of zero to Zerdan Shakiri. Yeah. Uh, well, we're an isosceles triangle, so you're one of the quarters thereof, Joe. Is that okay? Do we have to be isosceles? Like, could we be scalene or no? Well, that that would imply power is seated in one of the corners, would it oh, not, Joe? That's a, that's oh, issue, very interesting. So you chose your triangle carefully, Ryan. A power triangle is, its strength lies in its equality. That's what I say, Joe. What are we talking about? Graham Rutherman, hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. I am shook that there are different types of triangle. This is Illuminati talk right here. Did, did you go to school, Graham? Uh, barely. Scottish school. <laughs> I'm still... So I went out on a limb yesterday trying to do math on this show and butchered it when we were talking about yeah. uh, calendars. I... I uh, isosceles triangles do have like an une- unequal side, right? Like there's there's a side that's not the same. If we're going all the way down, you know, we got to do equilateral. Otherwise, Ryan, I'm giving uh, you the short side on the iso triangle. I messed up the terminology. I wanted the triangle where all three angles are the same, Joe. Have I, I've, oh, I've, I've failed. No, Sorry, it works out. You're the short ground. side. Sorry, Ryan. Wow, what an excellent intro to this podcast so far. Uh, the, the ship is sinking because there's no Taylor Rockwell on this episode. Uh, fun fact, he takes every leap day off, so he has a day off every four years. Happy leap day, Graham. How are you feeling? I hadn't even clocked that it was a leap, a leap day, leap year, this year, this day. Yeah, happy leap day year to you too, Ryan. Thank you very much. Olympic years, always leap years, always an extra day of goodness. That's what I find. I've got a friend who is 10 years old today, despite being on his earth 40 years. Isn't that fun? Oh, <laughs> as a Jesse Wingard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, there we go. I'm learning things about footballers. What does he do with his uh, with his birthday? Does he do both days, like the the 28th and the first, or, or what does he do usually? I think usually he's a March 1st kind of guy. Okay, um, but it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Jar Rule also born on Leap Day. The more you know. <laughs> I don't know why I know that, but I do. Uh, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for our bonus content. We've got bonus episodes on there. We've got bonus videos and access to our Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out. Uh, Graham, I demand... I demand a video coming up uh, for, about your kettle, which you just told us about, <laughs> your your boiling device. Um, uh-huh. This this might be quite British-centric, but you, you claim oh, you have a kettle... Might be? Heat- no, no, yeah, confirmed. <laughs> confirmed on that one, fellas. So you claim your, your kettle heats at a slower rate yes. to make the water softer, which is a very bougie kettle indeed. Indeed indeed, it does. I cannot clarify the science on that. Joe was questioning the science. I have no answers, Joe, on on that. Ryan, this was the most British conversation we'd ever had before mm. an episode. Now, I like that you decided to, to bring it into the episode itself yeah. to, to out just how British we are. I thought, us getting, well, me getting triangles wrong, I thought I could double down on the nonsense intro by uh, bringing in a kettle as well, Graham. But there you go, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for all the bonus nonsense. Let's get to Take It or Leave It, shall we? We start off with Peter Jordan, who contacted us via email and says, 
If PSV Eindhoven were promoted the English Premier League next year with their current squad and current manager, they would finish in the top five. Now, Joe, PSV 10 points clear, running away with the Eredivisie at the moment with Peter Bosch in charge from an undercard league, no less, uh, as, as is canon on TSS. Now, the reason I am leaving this is financial, Joe. According to TransferMark, the squad value of PSV is 282 million euros. If we look at the Premier League teams around top five, Aston Villa, squad value, 623 million, over double. Tottenham Hotspur, 761 million, much more than double, nearly triple. And Brighton, even Brighton, who were in the top five running, 487 million squad value. So if we, if we operate on the principle that money rules this game, as it indeed does in the Premier League, then PSV are going to struggle to get into the top five of the Premier League. Yeah, I, I agree with the general premise there, Ryan. I'm leaving this take from Peter, although I really, really like it. One thing I'm not totally sure about with your methods there, and I don't know how Transfer Market calculates their squad values. And just to be clear, that's what you're using, right? Not, yes. not transfer fees or salary. Okay. He messages every player, actually, and asks them. <laughs> hey, uh, how much do you think you're worth? How much are you making? All that stuff. <laughs> I would assume there's a bump that those values get just by the very nature of those players being in the Premier League even if like on value they're not actually a better player. So I don't I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm leaving that specific line of thinking, but in general, Ryan, I think you're right. And, and I'll go a bit more general with it. The squad depth and the squad and the squad quality of this PSV team, we know is very good. It is excellent. It is elite and historically good for the Eredivisie. It is even excellent in general when you look at Europe as a whole. We just saw this team go toe-to-toe with Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League, and I thought they were maybe a, a little bit fortunate to, to get a, a, a draw in that game, but like they're not that far off from Dortmund and Dortmund are in the Champions League hunt over in the Bundesliga right now. I, I think it's fair to say PSU would do very, very well in the non-Premier League big four, huh? see what I did there, leagues, but I, I'm not convinced about them finishing top five. I, I My first thought on this was to go and look at the Opta team rankings, which we've mentioned on this show before. Opta does something very cool. They have basically every soccer team and their brother in the world in this giant data set. And they have these team rankings assigned to them that they calculate based off of a bunch of different metrics. And I was actually surprised at how close they had PSV to finishing in the top five. If PSV had been in the Premier League, according to Opta, they would be the sixth best team. So right on the edge, right behind Villa, Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool, and Man City in that order. I'm still not quite buying even that. I look at the squad, very, very good, good team. I just don't quite see this happening. I think top five is a step or two too far. Joe, what is the methodology Opta are using there? To don't know. Music? Assume okay. there's lots of smart data involved, um, but I, I don't know the specifics. Huh. Okay. Graham, taking or leaving? Yeah, as impressive as PSV have been this season, I am also leaving this one just because I think the top end of the Premier League right now might be stronger than any top end of any league has ever been. Like the Premier League is, is, is historically strong right now. So the top five in the Premier League table right now is Liverpool, City, Arsenal, Aston Villa and Tottenham. So I think we'd all agree that Liverpool, City and Arsenal are untouchable in this comparison because they might be the three best teams in Europe right now. I think if you add in Real Madrid and potentially Bayer Leverkusen, that might be the the top five in Europe at this moment in time. But anyway, looking at uh, PSV, they would have to finish above Villa or, or, or Spurs. I just can't really see that, to be honest. I, I'm really I'm really trying not to be too Premier League-centric here, but if I just look at the player-for-player player quality that PSV have and then compare it to, to Villa and Spurs, um, how many PSV players would start for Villa? I have it as two. 
the two the two fullbacks, so Tezzi and Sergino Dest, I think are both an upgrade, even though Dest has his flaws. Um, hasn't been perfect for PSV this season. I think that both of them are an upgrade on the fullbacks that, that Aston Villa have at the moment. How many PSV players would start for Spurs? Honestly, I'm not sure that I can pick out any. And that's not to say that PSV don't have good players. Bo- Bakayoko, I'm a big fan of his. I've written about him a couple of times. I think he has a big future. I expect he'll be in the Premier League soon enough. Maybe two or three years from now, he would start for a Villa or, or a Spurs or something like that. Joey Veerman has been excellent in the centre of midfield as well for PSV this season. Olivier uh, Boscagli in the defence is a good player and a football manager icon. So there are good players in this PSV team. But um, yeah, just when, when I compare the finances, when I compare the players, I struggle to put them in the top five of the Premier League right now. How many of them would start for Liverpool right now, Graham, given that half of them are out? If Liverpool what? have no players, the answer is all of them. <laughs> well, the way Liverpool are going, maybe Bobby Clark and whoever the football manager regens that they found down the back of the couch, maybe they do start over the PSV players right now. Um, okay, so we, we, we've kind of established we don't think the PSV would make the top five. Let's say, theoretically, we do plonk Eindhoven into the Premier League, Graham. Where would they finish? I am saying the better um, just within the top half, like tenth or ninth, okay. is where I would where I would the Chelsea place zone. them. The Chelsea zone, as it has become known, weirdly <laughs> in this strange parallel universe that we live in now, the Chelsea zone was not mid table a couple of seasons ago. But yeah, the Chelsea zone about yeah. mid table is, is is roughly where I'd place them. And Chelsea squad value quite a lot higher than two hundred eighty two million euros. I will add. As it's well. higher Joe. than everyone's. That's not yeah. a fair metric. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, where are you, where are you placing them? I I think I have them in a similar spot. One underrated part of all this, and as a quick aside, I went in and dug into the power rankings methodology for Opta. They use ELO ratings, so you get, you know, your ratings boosted if if you win a game and lowered if you lose. And there are are a couple more layers to it, like league strength and and other coefficients that they involve. They have a good explainer online. But in in terms of PSV finishing in the Premier League, I, I would have them in that Chelsea zone, maybe even like slightly lower than Graham, and again, not because these players aren't good. They're very, very good. But one thing that we didn't talk about is how tactically PSV would probably have to change in the Premier League. Right now, they they dominate the ball. They control games. They're not always building with these really delicate you know patterns from the back in the Eredivisie, but they, they do do a lot of nice, clean stuff in possession. And when your quality advantage is erased, it gets way, or at least mostly erased against most teams in the Premier League, it gets really, really difficult to play like that. There's a reason why we don't see Wolves coming out and trying to drop 70% possession on one of the better teams in the league. You're going to get toasted if you do that kind of stuff. And PSV, I think, would have to overhaul their identity with a league shift, and there'd be you know other, other challenges here as well. But I think probably maybe slightly lower than where Graham has them. All right, Peter, thank you very much indeed for your take. We go now to odavis97 on Twitter, who has submitted the following spicy take emil forsberg will win mls mvp joe sure why not yeah i i love this take i'm leaving it i'm leaving it like really hard about as hard as you can leave it but oh i don't i don't mind this emil forsberg shout at all because it gives us a chance to talk about him and i think he is going to be one of the absolute best players in major league soccer if this is a year where the greatest soccer player of all time wasn't in MLS, dominating every narrative despite what Don Garber tries to do to get people to not talk about Messi, despite the fact that oh, what a weird you, quote the, that the was. league website literally <laughs> is plastered with Messi stuff all over. Absolutely bizarre. Uh, I, I still think when Messi's in this league, the bar that he has to hit to win MVP 
is in the basement, guys. It is so incredibly low. If this guy scores 18 goals and has four assists, he will be the MVP. If he plays 22 games, he will be the MVP. Maybe not necessarily because he should be. And I do think he'll do more than what I just said. I think 20 and 20 is imminently possible for Leo Messi. But even if he doesn't hit that, he's Leo Messi. He's going to win MVP. So I think the more interesting discussion, to be honest, around all this is who will be the second best player, who will be the runner-up in that conversation. Uh, But I I don't think Forsberg's going to edge Messi to that award. Well, just to reframe it slightly then, Joe, because I agree, Messi, I think we both had that in our Guardian um, predictions that yeah. it's kind of taboo at this point not to give an individual award to Lionel Messi. So I think it's pretty much nailed on that if he's fit, he gets handed that award at the end of the season. But to reframe it slightly, is there a chance that Emil Forsberg is the best player in MLS this season? Uh, no, because Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi well, still, you're talking about the narrative, uh, putting the narrative aside. Is that what you mean, Graham? Yeah, because, well, for example, M- Messi won the Ballon d'Or in 2023. I don't think many people would argue he was the best player in 2023. At this point, he's got to a point in his career, Messi, where his stature and his standing just um, naturally... There's a gravity with these personal, these individual awards. So could could Forsberg be the best? Uh, No, because Lionel Messi is... Even though I put together that hypothetical scenario where maybe Messi's injured a ton and he only scores 18 goals and has four assists, that's not going to happen, right? Messi is going to be really, really good when he's on the field. He will be the best player in Major League Soccer when he is on the field, and I think there's a good chance that he plays 25 regular season games, which is what's looked at to win MVP. So no, I don't think anybody else in the league has a chance to be better or, or really more valuable than Lionel Messi, including Emil Forsberg. Graham, could you argue that um, Forsberg would have competition from other Inter-Miami players as well? Like Suarez surely could be yeah. up there too, right? Well, to kind of address this um, this take, I've, I've tried to like take Messi out of the equation, yeah. if that is possible. And I'll do that I too think, in a minute. Yep. I think that's entirely fair, Ryan. You would, you would look at other contenders within the league. So I think it's entirely possible that Forsberg, let's just say Messi, and I hope this doesn't happen, but let's just say he had a bad injury right this year. I think it's entirely possible that Forsberg could be mentioned as a candidate for MVP. I didn't watch the Red Bull season opener against Nashville. He was really good. I, I, I caught some of the highlights. Is that sarcasm, Joe? Or was no, the no, scoreline not reflective? Emil, Emil Forsberg was the best player oh, right, on the okay. field by a country mile in that game. Sorry, I thought you were talking about the match being really no, no, good. No, oh, the, match, the, the score match line was terrible. <laughs> yeah, the scoreline did not suggest that. But yeah, I caught some of the highlights and it seemed like Forsberg did have a, a good game, as you're suggesting um, there, Joe. There were some good number there was a good number of passes through the Nashville defense and he hit the bar from a free kick so I liked what I saw and I'm interested in how he's going to play for the Red Bulls because for for Leipzig I often maybe this is incorrect but I, I often associated him with being one of the forwards who would get in behind and take up good scoring positions maybe as a, a secondary forward it seems like the Red Bulls want him to orchestrate more they've given him the the number 10 shirt which I, I know that doesn't always mean much but there is some symbolism there so I'm interested in how he plays for the Red Bulls, whether he's going to be the main creative hub for that team. But even if he is exceptional this season, I guess my concern with Forsberg being an MVP candidate would be, will he score enough goals for that? He might well be the best player in the league, but to win MVP, I think you need a serious haul. And if you look through Forsberg's career numbers, he's never hit double figures for goals in a single season. He hit 19 assists for Leipzig in the 2016-17 season. So maybe if he replicates that... He might be a candidate. But then to your point, Ryan, if he's in that kind of category, if, if Messi isn't isn't um, considered for whatever reason, I think guys like Kucho Hernandez, Dennis Boanga, if he stays, Tiago Amada, if he stays, Giacomakis, all of those guys, I think, will Adrian also be Petty. in that discussion. Him yeah. as well, yeah. Enzo Capetti, Ashley Westwood, Brant Bronico, <laughs> Scott Arfield. The whole squad, yeah. Yep. Grim, yep. I, I do agree. I, and I think 
the way that you sort of shifted us to looking at this outside of Messi is, is probably the way to go because he does skew everything. There is a reality where Messi never comes to MLS and Emil Forsberg comes anyway. And in that reality, yeah, like I, I would be very, very tempted to take this take from O'Davis. I, I just don't see it happening for me. And it was a really good start to life in MLS for Forsberg last weekend. Like uh, uh, he passes with his right foot. He passes with his left, even with his head. Just the, the speed and the tempo at which he plays. Bradley Wright Phillips had a column for MLSsoccer.com about Emil Forsberg. So there was some non-messy stuff over, over on the league site. Uh, and I loved, I loved the column because BWP's played for the Red Bulls, obviously. And he knows that system very well. And his biggest point, at least the one that stuck out to me the most, was Forsberg's speed of play and his thought changes the tempo of the game in a way that lets Red Bull play even more like Red Bull and makes him even better. I think Forsberg is going to be absolutely brilliant in Major League Soccer. I have him pretty much just after that game against Nashville, and I probably would have put him in this tier just under it before the season started. I have him in that second tier of players with Cucho Hernandez, Buwanga, a lot of the ones you mentioned, Graham. Aaron Bupenza is in that tier for me for FC Cincinnati. I would put Almada if he's around. You know, Forsberg's probably in that category. And then underneath those players, I would, I would toss in a bunch of other number 10s as well. Reynoso, Carles Hill, Lucho Acosta, Ricky Puj is not the exact same kind of player, but he's in that conversation. Hector Herrera as well. Like Forsberg's in that upper echelon of players already. I, I really do believe that. But I don't think between the Messi situation and the fact that we haven't mentioned it, the Red Bulls probably aren't going to be a top four team in the Eastern Conference. And if you want to win an MVP award, it helps to be on one of the league leading teams. And I don't think the Red Bulls are going to be that this year. That's a good point, Joe. I suppose this whole conversation highlights the dumbness of individual awards, does it not? In that Messi is automatically assumed to get MVP despite performances. It's It does highlight the yeah triviality of it. They're they're dumb. They're 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 real dumb. But what I will say is, and maybe I need to walk back something I said earlier. I think if Messi is on the field and plays twenty four games, he will automatically win the MVP award. Not just because he's Lionel Messi, but also because he will clearly be the best and most valuable player on the field in Major League Soccer. He is still like one of the absolute best players in the world, and he's shown that every single time we've seen him on the field in MLS last year and this year. So, yeah, there is a, a narrative component to it, and I emphasize that early on, but there is also, like, this very real element of him being Lionel Messi, which means, yes, he's got narrative, but also, he's the real deal, folks. All right, thank you, Davies 97 for that take. We take a quick break now. When we come back, we're talking Gio Reyna, Kevin De Bruyne, and much more. Back shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Take It or Leave It, or Teorly, as nobody is calling it. We go to Ben Sundstrom, who's contacted us via email. Uh, ben says, the head referee has far too much power for one person in soccer games, and it makes the game susceptible to bias and match-fixing. Oh boy. I think, Graham, of all the takes we've had today, this is my hardest leave. Oh, honest. is it? With all right. due respect to Ben and his opinion here, I just think there has to be one central source of authority in a game because if if we don't let the referee, central referee, the head referee, have all the power in the game, what's the alternative? And how would it work? Robots, would there not be robots, robots. <laughs> Graham, I, uh, I, I cede the floor to you. Okay, so pre-VAR, I am leaving this one. My ideal scenario is the old way, right? I'm old school in this regard when it comes to refereeing. That the referee has ultimate say and there's no VAR and they just make the decisions they see and everyone gets on with it like grown-ups. That's kind of what I want from refereeing. But unfortunately, we're now in this VAR age. So I'm taking this one. Ooh. So we had a question a while ago and I can't I can't remember exactly um, what it was. I was trying to find it in my notes. But basically, it spoke about this core premise that a lot of people... Um, maybe including yourself, Ryan, from what you're saying there, seem to believe, which is that the referee has to have final say. I don't fully understand that. Um, I guess the idea is to have like consistency. Like if, if I was to boil down why you think that should be the case, is it, is it fair to say it's so that you have a consistent level of refereeing within the match? Is that the reason? Well, I think almost that, Graham, but also just generally, I don't know what the alternative is. If the assistant or if the VAR room has control of a game or they have control over certain decisions there'll be conflict of opinion with the main referee right. who is the guy on the field i don't know how you resolve that conflict so to just quickly address the consistency thing if, if that's what people do want from uh, a referee being in charge I, I would argue that referees don't have consistency within the match when they are the one the, the sole people and person in, in control there are, there are inconsistencies within refereeing performances naturally um and when i look at vr so I'm going to lay out a scenario here, Ryan, for you, which is um, kind of describing, I think, how it would work. Um, for the sake of the process of VR, I would like the VR person in the VR room to actually have decision-making power. So if something goes to VR, I just don't like this process of the VR has a look, they go, yeah, okay, I think that might be a foul or a red card or a penalty. You go and have a look at as well. 
and they go and rec- recommend the referee to go and look at it on the pitch and that takes ages and two, three minutes have passed at this point. The VAR is a qualified referee. They can make a decision, a qualified decision on their own. So I would just like, if something goes to VAR, they say, I think this is how it works in other sports. I think maybe they do this in rugby, um, potentially. Um, the VAR referee just says, yep, that's a penalty. That's a red card. Communicates the decision to the referee and you almost have like a refereeing team rather than this single Don't they do that now? referee in charge. No, the referee has to go to, for, for subjective calls, so if it's something like an offside, they don't go to the, to the, to, to the pitch side monitor, monitor. But something like a tackle in the box or red card, they'll send the referee to the monitor. So it's almost like there are two layers of process where one referee has a look at it, thinks, I'm, I think that might be a, a red card or a penalty. You go and have a look at it as well. And then another person goes and has a look at it. Just take one person out of the process, make a decision. I think I don't know, Graham. I think there's nuance to that because when it is a subjective decision, I think the person on the field who's been standing next to those players for the entire game might have a different perspective to someone in a room ninety miles away. Uh, it's it's tricky. What what perspective is that? Like once you go to VR, that's the perspective. It would be like, oh, I heard him say, "I'm going to side you down in five minutes," whereas the VAR room might not have heard that. that well, I would argue that shouldn't really come into the decision making <laughs> process anyway. Like you might that might have been a bluff. All right. Okay, so you're you're taking this one, Graham. Joe's uh, got the deciding vote. I I I accept your I accept the fact that the VAR should have like the red light green light ability, but I ultimately think it should be even an automatic process that the referee says, right, they've given us the green light. That's the decision. Um, you know, Mike Pence still has to certify the results in Congress. You know, it's just it's just an automatic process, but it still should happen. They've got like a whole opinion. day to do that though. We've got ninety <laughs> minutes. We've got to move this thing along. <laughs> Fair enough. Joe, what say you? Oh, I cannot emphasize enough how little I have feel strongly about this topic. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have in my notes, because honestly, I don't know who to believe. I have takedown in my notes. I don't feel strongly about it. Yes, Joe. I, only because I think there are actual examples. I don't think there, there are actual examples of match fixing when it comes to referees. And I think the current system is set up for that to be more possible than maybe it would be in other systems. I don't have a great solution here, but we had, right before the 2018 World Cup, a Saudi Arabian referee, Fahad Al-Mirdasi, was banned for life because he was soliciting uh, bribes ahead of a King's Cup final in Saudi Arabia, and he did not get to ref the World Cup, and he does not get to ref anymore. There was another FIFA ref banned in 2020. Like, this stuff happens. To be clear, I think most refs do a, a really hard job really, really well, and we're seeing in MLS right now how hard it is and how underrated, legit, trained referees are, and I hope that system gets resolved very, very soon because it seems like Messi's darn near had enough of that, uh, but I, I do think there is something here from Ben in the current system. I also think there's something in maybe some arguments that have been raised about like timing, and this isn't really where Ben's coming from with this question, but like, let's get the show on the road. I don't know that the referee necessarily needs to be in charge of every single little decision. If it's going to VAR, they're looking at the TV screen, they're a trained referee, just let them do their job and then move the game along. And I think the Premier League has really, really struggled with that and they do a lot of things well, that is not one of them. So I am I am taking this, that the ref has too much power. I don't know that the the bias element, how much that really plays into it, but but maybe that is a real thing as well. Yeah, I'm not sure about that element of the take, actually, as well, Graham, the, the, the match fixing and the bias. It feels like there's still going to be elements of that, regardless of who has the final. Uh, yeah, and, and and also my understanding of um, match fixing. So if, as as to Joe's point, there are, there are certainly cases of referees that have been involved in match fixing, um, but it tends to be a little bit more nuanced than 
just like give a goal or a penalty to this team. Um, I think match fixing is maybe more targeted at players and things like corner kicks and yellow cards and 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 stuff like that. So I don't I don't know. Talk if there to would Juventus be... about that, Graham. You'll uh, you'll get a different opinion. <laughs> I think there are many authoritative figures that have talked to Juventus about that over the years. <laughs> um, so I don't know whether there would be much of a material impact there. Bias is one of these like cloudy things in football that's just so difficult to to pin down because everyone has some form of like subconscious bias. It's just whether it's malicious or or, or not, I guess. But um, in terms of the actual process of refereeing, yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. Very good. All right, Ben's take uh, divides the equilateral triangle. It's not isosceles, it's even. It's too late. You can't redeem yourself. You've shown yourself to be a dum-dum. Bad at math. Fine. Okay. Uh, Matthew Thompson on Twitter with our next hot take. It's time to revisit our expectations and evaluation of where Gia Reyna is in the US MNT pool. He's often discussed in such a light, not reflected in any historical club form. I have... I'm uh, I'm going to duck and cover and hand this one to Joseph Lowry to see how he feels about it. So I think everybody knows what I'm going to say on this, which makes my answer a little less interesting. So I'm very curious to hear what Graham has to say. Uh, I am, I'm leaving this take. I see where it's coming from, from Matthew. And I think there is something to it, especially when it comes to the dynamics inside of the U.S. men's national team when players are in camp and, and Greg Barlthor is handing out minutes to Gio Reyna where... Oh, he's getting a, a one singular minute against Manchester United here and nine singular minutes against somebody else over there. Like, he's just not just not playing. And, and that's been the case for Gio Reyna basically for years now. He has not been able to stay healthy. And now when he is healthy, he's out of favor both at Borussia Dortmund and already Nottingham Forest. That is a concern. But we've seen over and over and over again with the U.S. And this is why I'm leaving this take for Matthew. We've seen over and over and over again that you don't need to be killing it for your club to be huge for the U.S. men's national team. You don't even need to be playing for your club to be huge for the U.S. men's national team. World Cup qualifying, last cycle. Tim Weah was not starting for Lille in Liga. He was the U.S.'s best attacker consistently throughout World Cup qualifying. World Cup qualifying, last cycle. Matt Turner, not starting for Arsenal. He was the best U.S. goalkeeper by a mile in that uh, qualification period. Nations League last summer. Chris Richards wasn't playing for Crystal Palace coming into the summer. Wasn't playing soccer at all in the summer because it's in the summer. And he scores a goal and was huge for the U.S. and their Nations League wins over Mexico and Canada. Yunus Musa playing out on the wing for a wretched Valencia team in La Liga. Comes in and stars as a number eight for the U.S. men's national team. I could pull out probably another half dozen examples and Gio Reyna is the most talented player of any of those. And we've seen that on the field for the U.S. men's national team. And I think ignoring that is a disservice. I'm not saying that there aren't issues with Gio Reyna, both in terms of his playing time at club level, which is not great, and his personality and character, which has been drawn into real question during his time with the men's national team in the past. But I, I'm leaving this. Like, Gio Reyna on talent is still the best player in the U.S. pool. And that doesn't change for him. And it hasn't changed for relative other talent levels in the pool in the past. For all the players that I mentioned, I, I just wouldn't start someone else in his spot in a crucial must-win game tomorrow. I just wouldn't do it. Joe, I completely accept all of your arguments there, but I'm tempted to go the other way just because of the, the fact that you, you hinged it on talent alone. And okay. I think the big part of the equation is obviously not talent, it's injuries, isn't it? And maybe yeah. even part of the character stuff as well. Yep. So I don't think it's harmful to reevaluate expectations at this point, given that injury is probably the biggest factor in his career. Right totally. Now. I, I agree with that, but not in the context of this discussion. Like, it doesn't seem to me, at least, and maybe we need to get Matthew to elaborate. It doesn't seem to me like Matthew's talking about Giorena's injury history or whatever it is. It's talking about, or I assume, I assume Matthew's talking about the fact that he's just not playing right now, but he's healthy. Like, Giorena is healthy and fit. 
So I am looking at this in the lens of when Gio Reyna is available. If he's not healthy, yeah, it does. I mean, you, you can't play him. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But if he's healthy right now, and it is reasonable to play him, and he's not completely rusty, and those decisions are up to Greg Berhalter to make, because he's the one who's going to get to see Gio Reyna in training. But I would assume that Gio Reyna is still the same really, really good soccer player that he was before when he's healthy, because that has been the case for, again, a dozen U.S. men's national team players over the last four years. I think it's probably worth nailing down what, when, when Matthew talks about expectations of what Gio Reyna was or were, nailing down what, what they were, because he's, he mentions, Matthew, um, evaluation of where Gio Reyna is in the USMNT pool. Right now, I would say generally that's, that's unaffected because he's still, to, to, to much of Joe's point, he's still the most talented player. He's actually performed well recently for, for the US last year in, in a number of matches. And there's just, there, there are not better options. So right now, he's unaffected within the USMNT pool. You call him into every camp if he's fit and you play him if, if he's fit. But if we're talking about the expectation level that was set a number of years ago, that in my mind, Giorena, this is this was my impression. This was my my impression of what the the wider expectation of him was that he was going to be the best American player of all time. That was the, that was the talent level that he had. That was the hype that was around him when he broke through at Dortmund. Obviously, they had you had Christian Pulisic, but I think it's fair to say, as a seventeen year old, eighteen year old, whenever it was that Giorena broke through, the expectation was that he might surpass Christian Pulisic, and that's where. I feel like now we are at a crossroads with Gio Reyna. I find this a really tricky one because it's maybe two or three months premature. There's still a chance that he breaks into that Nottingham Forest team. You know, Callum Hudson-Odoi or Gibbs-White could have an injury. All of a sudden, Reyna's in that team. He's performing well. And I would say that would that might change my opinion. But if you ask me this in the summer, in this, this situation he's in right now where he's just not playing for a pretty poor Nottingham Forest team, if that sustains until the summer... It really does feel like we're at a crossroads, crossroads with Giorena's club career, at least, yeah. where we might have to reassess how good is this kid going to be. And there's, he's 21, right? He, there's still time for him to to, to fulfil his potential. The th- that is the thing that gives me hope with Giorena. Yeah, he is. Goodness. Well, he broke through at like 16 years old, so wow. he's 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 been around for a while. Hasn't played much recently, of course, but that we've seen players before who break through, then sort of stagnate and disappear for a bit, and then all of a sudden they put things together and they become the player that we thought they were going to be in the first place. The best recent example I have of that is Martin Odegaard, who was a wonder kid as a teenager, loads of hype, then written off as a flop. You will find maybe a Ryan Bailey Bleacher Report listicle that has uh, Martin Odegaard as a flop. God, that's stray, Ryan. Wow. (laughs) Crim, that's so dirty. I would argue, but it's probably true, Joe. (laughs) No, it it seems like it is true. No, I haven't checked. I was just presuming that there's probably a Bleacher Report listicle with Odegaard. Yeah, it's one of the two of us. Yeah, maybe it was my byline on it. But the point I'm making is he was written off widely as a flop when he was at Real Madrid, but then he makes a good loan move to a team that played to his strengths and harnessed him, and he never looked back, and now he's one of the best attacking midfielders in, in European football. So that is the hope that Giorena can come out of this difficult period in, in a similar way. But the summer does feel like, yeah, I keep using this word crossroads. It feels like he needs to get out of Dortmund and to a club that's better suited to him than Nottingham Forest because that doesn't look like it's panning out as a great move. And Graham, I think that's a great point and not something I considered a ton when thinking about this take from Matthew. I was looking at it more of, really, should he be a starter or not? Like, has he lost his starting role went healthy with the U.S., and I think the answer to that question should be an unequivocal no. But your your point about his legacy and his standing inside American soccer history, yeah, I do think with every weekend, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, I think with every weekend he doesn't play, like the odds of him becoming what he could be go down, right? He's not yet distanced himself from the pack. He's not broken into that upper echelon of, of U.S. players ever, despite his talent to do that stuff. 
So I think that is an entirely fair point. I just don't personally, and this is not just a Gio Reyna thing, by the way. Like I feel this way about any U.S. player that we've come in and seen them be consistently effective with the national team who clearly has talent but maybe is not in the right club situation and that every bit of that applies to Gio Reyna. I believe that for any number of U.S. players. Like Tim Weah is still the one that stands out to me most in my mind thinking about World Cup qualifying. He was playing left back or right back for Lille and was still coming in and being a very efficient attacker for the U.S. Greatest of all time, one of the best of all time for the U.S. men's national team? No, absolutely not. But someone who can be relied on to contribute despite challenges at club level? Absolutely. And I still think that applies to Gio Reyna. Good stuff. Uh, Graham, just for the record, are you at this snapshot in time taking the take? Oh, that's so difficult. <laughs> um, I'm totally on the fence with this one. Can I say that if this was the summer, no. I'd expect... Oh, no. God. Well, because, right. uh, Graham, would, would another two months of Nottingham Forest bench riding, really, like, is that what's going to make the difference for you on this one? The, the thing with this is I, I'm right on the fence, so that could be okay, enough. Fair enough. So like, you just need a be... light breeze to blow you on <laughs> yeah, the other <either> exactly. side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that breeze might push me over to, to, to taking it. Let's just say take it for argument's sake. Excellent. Graham, as you know, we don't allow fence sitting in this game. Thank you very much for taking a position. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're talking Kevin De Bruyne and we're talking about data and analytics. Joe's ears just pricked up. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Tick It or Leave It. We now go to The Chosen on Twitter. The Chosen, good handle. Kevin De Bruyne is the best midfielder of the past decade. Anyone in those Barca or Real Madrid squads does not compare. Woof, okay. Uh, Graham looks like he wants to have a crack at this one first. I'm gonna... I'm gonna... I'm gonna <laughs> No offense setting now. I might take it. I might take okay. it. With all due respect to my favourite player, Tony Kroos and Modric and Xavi and maybe Busquets and all those kind of players, I think I'm going to take it, Graham. Okay. I don't think that's a ridiculous position to take. So first of all, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to describe or, or list who I think the best midfielders of the last decade for me are. So Xavi, one of the best midfielders of all time, I think had either retired or was on his way to his retiring. His last year was 2014-15 with Barcelona. There we go. So. Oh. I, he uh, he was he doesn't make this list for me. So my list in no particular order: uh, Casemiro, Angolo Kante, Tony Cruz, uh, Sergio Busquets, Thiago when he's fit, uh, David Silva, Andres Iniesta. I know it's the back end of his career, but you get a good few years out of Andres Iniesta. Um, I've not mentioned Kevin De Bruyne, but he's certainly in there. And I've also not mentioned the guy who is top of the list for me, and that is Luka Modric. So I am leaving this one. Kevin De Bruyne is certainly right up there. He might be my number two, but my number one is Luka Modric. I think there is a strong argument, I've said this on the show before, that Luka Modric is the best midfielder of all time. The longevity that he's had, the way he's got better and better with age. I think now he's physically fading, finally. This, I think, will be his last year at Real Madrid. But just at the weekend there, he scores a winning goal, comes off the bench, scores a winning goal. So he's still having an influence. Two seasons ago, when he was 36, that was arguably the best ever season that he's had. He's a Ballon d'Or winner. don't know if that counts for much, but it says that he had a very good... Um, when was that? 2018, I think he won the, the Ballon d'Or. He's a goal scorer. He's a creator. He's a controller. He's got a low center of gravity. He can drive the ball forward. He can pass. You could say a lot of the same things about Kevin De Bruyne, yeah. but Luka, Luka Modric just edges it for me, I think. So I, I suppose that would be my argument, Graham. What, In terms of game influence, in terms of all those traits you've mentioned, what does Modric have that that Kevin De Bruyne doesn't? 
Well, I'd say Luka Modric is, um, uh, this is where the numbers completely tear this argument apart. But in my <laughs> mind, he's more of a goal threat than Kevin De Bruyne, in my mind. Interesting. Um, but not maybe not when now. you look at the numbers or, or yeah but not, but not when you actually back it <laughs> well, up well this is the thing yeah i bet those numbers completely tear <laughs> no, that yeah, argument apart they, they they do pretty pretty quickly graham but okay cool i am i so luka Modric has never scored more than five goals in a single season for real madrid uh de bruyne has done that one two three four five six seven times for manchester city and so, yeah, my argument seven of his nine comprehensively. Yeah. 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 But <laughs> I, it, I don't think it's a bad take from you, Graham. I, I am taking this for the sheer reason that uh, of the time frame that we're given for this take. If you say of the, of this millennium, I am leaving it, and the nostalgia of those Barcelona teams is swaying me towards one of Xavi or Iniesta. But uh, Luka Modric has a great shot for it. I ditched, by the way, all of the number sixes for this question. So no Casemiro, no Tony Kroos. Uh, see, well, Tony Kroos is kind of a six and a half or an eight, whatever. I didn't, I didn't put him in this conversation. No, uh, no Busquets, none of the, none of those guys, right? But when you look at just the the eights or the tens, and Kroos is probably more of an eight. But I'm I'm thinking more of the advanced attacking midfield types. If you look broader than a decade into the past, yeah, I'm probably not picking Kevin De Bruyne. But man, you go through and look, and, and this guy truly does it all. And we know this, right? But I was sort of in awe when I went back to look at some of his counting stats. He has everything, it, it, almost everything, that Modric has. I think Modric is a smoother, a little bit more technical build-up player. I think I would feel better about Luka Modric playing with his back to goal in a tight spot than I would about Kevin De Bruyne. But I feel more better, good English coming from me, I feel I feel better. even better, betterer about Kevin De Bruyne in the final third relative to Luka Modric in the final third than I, than I worry about the build-up stuff. So I am going Kevin De Bruyne despite my initial reaction being absolutely not because I think we always fall into this, this pit of whoever the newest and shiniest one is the best one. And De Bruyne is kind of the newest, shiniest one despite being a, a fully-fledged veteran, an aging one at this point in his career. But man, his, his resume is real strong and I'm not sure there's anybody out there that can catch him. The, the, what I find interesting about Kevin De Bruyne is it feels like he's destined to move a little bit deeper like Scholes did when um, he got older with his passing range. I think we've already seen that in a, in a couple of matches for Manchester City. So um, he could match Modric for longevity. Um, th- these goal-scoring numbers, De Bruyne's numbers are so They're much insane. better for goals than They're I expected insane. they would be. And equally, Modric's are so much worse than I was expecting. I don't know if he's got the Rodri thing of, does he score like five goals a season, but each one of those five is like really important yeah. <laughs> and an absolute yeah. banger. But yeah, wow, there's a there's a, a big difference in goals between those two. So that might force me to reassess. But I think my hunch is still Modric. And I don't, Graham, I don't, I, to be clear, I don't blame you for that whatsoever. I think Modric is a completely acceptable take if anybody wanted to go with Iniesta in this category, even though he is, his career was winding down over the last decade, you know, I don't think there would be any issues with that whatsoever. All of these players are generational talents. All of them are among the greatest of all time. If you pluck Modric out of that Real Madrid team, where he was dealing with you know a number of high-profile attacking stars and put him into Man City, where he would have been the centerpiece, as Kevin De Bruyne has been the centerpiece for quite some time. And yes, you can make an argument that it was Aguero, and now it certainly is Erling Holland. But for a while... I think it, that was De Bruyne's team. If Modric has that luxury, which he's never had at Real Madrid, you know maybe his numbers look different. And that's why comparing these players and their situations is so difficult. Um, but I came into this one not expecting to take it as hard as I as I am, and I am I'm taking this one. All right. Do we agree, by the way, that if it was just Premier League over the past decade, that it would be an uncontested yes, win for Kevin De Bruyne? Completely. Here, right? Who yeah. who would be the next closest over the last decade? Because I I do agree with that. I'm struggling <sighs> to think of who the number two is. 
Uh, I mean, Fabregas would be there. Yep. Silva. I mentioned David Silva. Yeah, David Silva. Um, uh, Yaya Toure. I don't know when he left City, but he certainly played for them like within the last ten years. Yep. Yeah, but um, I, I mean, I, I'm a hundred percent giving that to De Bruyne. I know. Yeah, same. What about Premier League all-time midfielders, Graham? Like, who's 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 he up against there? Vieira, Scholes. I don't know. Yeah, Scholes is is uh maybe the the closest comparison. Obviously, Scholes was like an attacking midfielder in his younger years, and then dropped a little bit deeper to become more of an orchestrator, which is kind of what I think is happening to De Bruyne. Um, so he'd be up there with Scholes. To be honest, I think there's a strong argument that Kevin De Bruyne is the the greatest midfielder the Premier League's ever seen. Um, this is where I don't want it to come across as me doing Kevin De Bruyne down he's outstanding he's he's a legend and I mean that we throw that word around a lot but he's a legendary player I just think Luka Modric might be the best of all time um, and he's obviously Modric, operated in the last 10 years Modric has that that extra bit of sauce that De Bruyne doesn't have and I guess that's maybe what I was trying to get at earlier like you think about the the best and the most high ri- highlight real worthy moments for each of those players and Modric has nine of the top 10 between the two, right? Like he is the one pulling off those ridiculous outside of the boot passes. He's the one that still gets to play because he plays for Real Madrid with a little bit more flair and a little less organization. And that I think generally makes for worse soccer, but it makes for more entertaining number 10s or more entertaining, you know, free flowing midfielders. And Modric has been that player in a way that Pep Guardiola and Man City have sort of you know, beaten yeah. some of that out of De Bruyne. And I think it's made De Bruyne an even sharper and more effective player in the final third. But I think that is like that aesthetic difference does kind of matter here when we talk about legacy. Yeah, I also think we've had at least two major tournaments where Luka Modric has been absolutely outstanding. Like one of the, the best players at that tournament. 2018 World Cup, I think he won player of the tournament. That's where he gets his Ballon d'Or from. Kevin De Bruyne, I'm not saying he's had bad World Cups or Euros, but I don't think he's really taken a grip of a tournament in the same way that Luka Modric has. has. And so that also factors into my equation. Graham is trying to make me cry with the number of times he said Ballon d'Or on today's show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one thing detracts from Kevin De Bruyne at the moment, Graham, um, it is I've, I've praised him since coming back from injury for the hair, which is superb. But... I think it's gone too far. I think the curtains have become too big now. I think the Jack Grealish influence has become too much, and it's become an exaggerated uh, mm. version of perfect hair in the last few match games and match, De- match weeks. Yeah, detrimental to his performances yeah. as well. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it dents his legacy a little bit for me, frankly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you very much to the, the Chosen for that take. Excellent discussion. One last take for this episode from at Loud Questions on Twitter. An overemphasis on analytics really does detract from the beauty slash awesomeness of the game. Graham rubbing his hands with glee with this take. (laughs) Oh boy. I think Graham, I'm I'm in danger of sitting on the fence here, but I think I'm, I'm pro, I might even take it because I think it depends. I knew you would. <laughs> it depends. I'm not not from like a proper football man perspective, but it depends what you want to get out of the game, right? Because we know the game is better for analytics. We know the game is better than it was 20 years ago because of data and analytics, right? We know it's become higher quality. We know that data helps us understand it. We get data on the broadcast and XG numbers and all, the, all those kind of things that we wouldn't have got even 10 years ago because it helps our understanding and there's an appetite for it among supporters and fans, right? But on the other side of the coin, it can take away from some of the nuances when you can almost like see how the sausage is made, right? You, you, I, I will put to you, Graham, that the majority of fans 
in stadia around the world who attend games are there to see the beauty, to see the ebb and the flow, and they're not breaking it down in numbers and looking at XGs on their phones during games. They are there for the awesomeness and the beauty that Loud Questions mentions. So, so it depends ultimately what you want from the game, well, right? Sorry, sorry to jump in. I take I take all your points there, Ryan. Uh, I, I just to be clear, I'm leaving this take as always because <laughs> I, 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 I have this. Yeah. I picked this one purely to hear what Joe would say. Well, so, so, <laughs> so my <laughs> biggest my biggest point of confusion, Ryan, with what you're saying is like uh-huh. who who in the stands like who is analytics affecting in the stands at a soccer game? Like how is their enjoyment being impacted whatsoever now compared to 30 years ago? Like are, are is the average fan sitting in the soccer game thinking up? Oh, Man, they got four. I'm just guesstimating here, but they probably have about 0.7 xG in this first half, and the yeah. other team only had, like who's doing the other that? Thing, no one is doing that. It has no impact on the viewer's experience. And the other thing is, like, regardless of whether the analytics happens or not, the stuff that analytics is measuring still happens. That's that's like my that. Well, like, that's, that's my that's point. That's a good with. argument. Although I'm struggling to see how that argument has necessarily worsened soccer's quality, but I'm more sensitive to that one. Like, okay, here's an example, right? Graham of sort of what you're saying. Long shots, generally speaking, have decreased over time because we got smart enough to realize like, man, I'm probably not going to bang this one in from 40 yards. If I try a hundred times, I'm I'm still probably not going to hit one of them. So we don't see as many long shots, which means as a result, we probably see fewer long shot goals. If that's the argument and you're saying, I love a good long shot banger and we just don't see as many of them today, I, I will give you that. I will still take the idea that you get better goals because you get prettier play and, and you're going to get more of them. And scoring has increased, by the way, as time has gone on. In the Premier League, we just had the highest scoring per game Premier League season back in the 18-19 season ever. But I just don't see how for the average fan, and I'd be curious to ask loud questions, how analytics is actively or even passively impacting their enjoyment of a soccer game. Joe, you make a very good point and you're making me tempted to leave this take. But let me ask you one thing. Do okay. you like magic? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like magic. Not when it's from a thief, you know, I'm just not impressed by a sledding. Right. Scenario, you go to a magic show, you see some amazing tricks. Sure. Is it more awesome when you see the tricks and you walk away and you talk about how they were done? Or is it more awesome if the magician says, this is how I did this one and turns it around and shows you? The the first one, for sure. I agree with that. How does that apply to soccer? Well, I think some, as I say, it depends what you want to get from the game. If you're just there to see the beauty of the game, you don't need to... I don't know if the adding the layer of data and analytics on top of that as a fan helps you so, enjoy or understand. Well, it does help you understand. It doesn't help you enjoy the game. Okay, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. Here, no, no, so I, I got, I got you. you. I, I think, so, I think I've converted you, Ryan. I feel good about that. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't understand even how in that situation, like I just don't, I cannot picture a fan who's going to a game and thinking like, man, underlying numbers have ruined this sport for me. Like they've ruined this experience. <laughs> it's a complete waste of my time. I just don't see, I, I get the idea that analytics is changing how the sport is being played. Yeah, we should actually. I get the idea that, that data is changing how the sport's being played. And so that does have an impact on the fan. And if someone could build a coherent argument for actually, like aesthetically, soccer has gotten less entertaining and less beautiful because of the data revolution, even in its infancy that where we are now, I'm all about that. Like if, if someone can tell me how that's happened, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm taking this question. I'm all the way for it. I just, I just don't think anybody can do that right now. So one, uh, so first of all, I'm leaving this one. Um, I kind of understand the premise a little bit, um, but personally, I'm leaving it because analytics doesn't detract from the beauty of soccer for me because I can like kind of separate the two. I can I can find an analytical discussion about the structure of a box midfield interesting, but then also watch a thirty yard volley on my phone and just marvel at the spectacle of it without going any deeper. So it doesn't. I don't see how. I think this is to Joe's point. Um, 
even if you're not into analytics, you can still enjoy soccer without the analytics. Just don't go looking for it. Like, don't read the analyst. But or, you can't, like, or... I mean, I suppose on a broadcast, Graham, you can't avoid it Well, this it is anymore. the point I'm getting to. Yeah. This is the point I'm getting to. So I, I sit among, like, hundreds of the people that I think Loud Questions uh, is talking about. <laughs> and right. they will kind of roll their eyes or whatever about, you know, oh, I wonder what the expected goals on that one was. And so I think that those people would argue that coverage of soccer is less enjoyable now that's a little bit more like homework and I, I can kind of understand that like there are certainly times Monday Night Football on Sky we spoke about this earlier this week is a very nerdy show and it's my it's my favorite football show I watch it every single week I feel like I learn something from it but if I get to a Friday night and I'm watching a game and I've had you know had a long week I don't really want the sense of homework I just want to enjoy a game passively and let it wash over me and enjoy the shots on targets and the and the crunching tackles well, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um so I that's where I kind of like understand the the premise. And what I would say is that if I didn't have a professional duty and covering soccer wasn't my job, I I probably could leave most kind of like deep analytical stuff. I think I yeah. could happily watch most matches just quite passively as a proper football man. Uh, and one of my favourite things is that Friday night game that I watched the Scottish Championship game or Thursday nights, Europa League matches, right, are on Thursday nights. And because we've just finished recording for the week, we won't talk about those games and we record our Friday show on the Thursday. So that's like our, at the end of the week Damn. for us. And I uh, I just sort of let them wash over me and I just basically enjoy the goals without going any deeper. So that's where I can kind of understand the premise of the question, but I definitely don't feel like analytics has impacted my enjoyment of football. Yeah, Graham, I'm, I'm with you. I think I'm with you on all of that. The only part that maybe I would disagree with slightly, and Ryan, you kind of said it there, interjecting, like expected goals. And I would assume that this question is coming from loud questions, just kind of being irritated with like maybe their, their Twitter timeline or the occasional XG mention on a broadcast or like a graphic. We've always had stats mentions on broadcast. We've always had stats graphics on broadcast. That doesn't change. It's just the stats that are, that are changing. Like it's just like you go back to a Premier League game from 1990 or whenever the Premier League started, like somebody on the broadcast team is going to talk about shots on target. Somebody on the broadcast team is going to talk about, passing and possession or whatever, even if they're not naming specific numbers, those concepts are there and I would bet you any amount of money that they were naming numbers back then. Stats have always existed in soccer. They're, they're just different now. And as people, as humans, we don't always love change. And I think we're still very much in this era where we're resisting change, where instead of talking about you know passing completion percentage all the time, well, maybe, maybe we start talking about some expected numbers. They're just different numbers. If you don't want to hear them, like, well, you were already hearing them beforehand and really nothing has changed on that front yeah I, I do wonder if the in the analytical age we overvalue certain players and undervalue other players and whether there are players from past generations who just wouldn't have been thought of in the same way in the modern age and number one at the top of that list for me is Zinedine Zidane I read an article about Zinedine Zidane um I think so, at some point last year and basically it made the, from the data that was available at the time, and that's another thing, when you go back decades, they don't collect the same level of data. But from what they did have, they argued it would kind of be difficult to place Zinedine Zidane, Zinedine Zidane amongst some of the best players in, in the world around that time. But he was considered the, the greatest player in the world because people just enjoyed watching him play. And there was, a, there was a certain enjoyment to the way that he moved and the way he controlled the ball and stuff like that. And obviously that might not have a material impact on the outcome of a game, but I do think there is, maybe we have lost a little bit of romanticism there in terms of the appreciation of a player and just the appreciation of skill for skill's sake. Um, so yeah, I think there's maybe something there. 
There, I think there's definitely something there, Graham. And I think almost if you compare it to cars, like if you if there's a beautiful car, you have an emotional connection to it as well, right? You don't just think about what mm-hmm. oh, that does 0 to sixty in two point six seconds. I think it's a similar thing as you mentioned with players like Zidane, and it, it's that concept of romanticism. I think is what it is. You don't. I don't think I'll remember the nineteen ninety eight World Cup final because of the XG that France had. It'll be because of Zidane. It'll be because of Emmanuel Petit. It'll be because of the emotion that that moment created. So I'm I'm leaving, but it's a soft leave for me ultimately. I think. Yeah, I'm also leaving, but I can I can sort of understand the premise. Yeah, I'm proud of you guys. We did it. <laughs> equilateral equilateral triangle for the win. We did it. <laughs> Take it and left it as appropriate. Uh, Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for your takes in this episode. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always. And keep me honest on those triangle shapes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Man, I'm just I'm lucky I kind of win this week, guys. This was fun. <laughs> Listener, thank you the mostest. Uh, remember, you can send us your takes uh, via any medium, email, Twitter, carry pigeon if you so choose. Uh, we'll be back on the feed very shortly indeed. But for now, bye.